Today's scripture reading comes from uh, the book of Romans, chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 11. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 1123. That's 1123. Submission, so this is again Romans 13, uh, verses 1 through 11. Submission to the authorities. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear from the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to you, uh, for he is God's servant to, to, do, uh, to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who gives their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow, fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there are may be summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, not, does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Thank you, David. So, good morning, everyone. I, uh, I've started doing something in in recent years, and what I've started doing is I start, uh, I've started to mark my calendar, I've started to mark the first Sunday in February is always the last Patriots game of the year. Um, That just seems to be how it is, that it's always, they play into February, It, it doesn't really even seem fair, honestly. I feel bad for them. I feel bad for their entire organization. Most of the teams, they're done in, in, in December. They get to go home to their families, to their wives, right? I mean, the, the Jets and the Giants, I mean, they, they're done in, well, they're done in like October, right? But the Patriots, they've had to play, and they continually have to play. Oh, okay, I'm not getting any sympathy. Anyway, it's the Super Bowl. Today is the Super Bowl. Are we excited about this? The Super Bowl is almost a national holiday. It's, it really has sort of become like a national holiday. And the way, one of the ways in which I saw the extent to which the Super Bowl has sort of taken over American culture is, is that my, my daughter came home from school one day and, and she said, Daddy, every single, every single activity was Super Bowl themed. Every single activity in her first grade class, they, you know, like this, this happens around Thanksgiving, right? She'll come home around Thanksgiving and she will have made a turkey out of, you know, you know construction paper and her math homework will be, you know, 
Uh, Bobby had three turkeys and Jill had two turkeys. How many turkeys did they have together? You know, that sort of thing. And, and maybe her vocabulary will deal with Thanksgiving words, that sort of thing. I'm not kidding. She came home and it was all football themed. Like this many footballs plus this many footballs. The Super Bowl has almost become like a national holiday. And so <clears throat> I... Uh, I sent my daughter out on Thursday. It was Jersey Day. They call it Jersey Day, where kids can go and wear their, <clears throat> wear their jerseys. And I was so proud of my little girl. She went out wearing a, a Patriots jersey, a Rob Gronkowski jersey. She went there. She braved the, she braved the enemy uh, that was clearly out there when she went. Uh, but here's actually what you need to know about that particular morning. She actually didn't want to wear it. She didn't want to wear the jersey. She, uh, in fact, at that point, I think she's come around since Thursday, I'm hoping. At that point, she actually said she was for the Rams. And she's like, I don't want to wear this jersey. And so here's what I did. I looked at her and I said this. I said, as long as you are under my roof, you will submit to my authority. Today we're continuing in our series on the book of Romans. This is a series that we began seven and a half months ago. I was looking to see when we started this series. It was seven and a half months ago. We're coming to the end. We did take a break for Advent to do a a different series, Uh, but we're starting to come to the end, but we went through it for seven and a half months, and just to kind of remind you, the book of Romans is a letter written by a man named Paul, written about the year 57 AD, and he is writing to the Christian communities living in the city of Rome at that time. And what we have seen over the last seven and a half months, and I hope that this has come through, is that the the main point of the book of Romans, the the main thing that Paul wanted them to understand and he wants us to understand, if we can take that incredibly massive letter and just reduce it to something simple, it's this. It's that there is good news. The book of Romans communicates very clearly that there is good news. We we live in a world where we are used to bad news. We are accustomed to bad news, right? Of course, we turn on the news, and there's always the latest atrocity, the latest injustice. But the bad news isn't isn't just sort of out there, uh, at this sort of global or, or sort of public level, the reality is, is that every single one of us, every single person that you know is going through something, has gone through something, or will go through something. Every single one of us, there's some sort of bad news that we've had to deal with, that we're dealing with, or that we will deal with. My, my brother was a raft guide uh, on the Colorado River uh, about 20 years ago now. It's been a while. But I went on a couple of trips with his, comp- his company, and this one time I went on a trip with his company, and I was assigned to a, a different boat than, than he, was, he was guiding. And I was a little bit nervous because it was a, a pretty, pretty rough section. It was a pretty exciting section of whitewater, and I didn't know the, the guide that was going to be taking me. His name was Beach. Was his name? Kind of a good name for raft guide, I guess. I don't know. And uh, I, I said to Beach, I said, I was a little nervous, I said, you know, Beach, have you ever, you know, like, have you ever flipped a boat? Like, has that ever happened before? He's like, no, no, I actually, I, n- I never have. 
And my brother heard him say that to me, and this is what my brother said. He said, he said, Beach, there are only two kinds of raft guides. There are those who have flipped, and there are those who are going to flip. And more prophetic words my brother has never uttered, because 20 minutes later, I'm underneath the raft that Beach had flipped for the first time. What is true of raft guides is true of life if we use that as an analogy of life. If your life is a boat going down a river, there are only two kinds of people. There are those whose lives have been flipped upside down, and there are those whose lives will be flipped upside down. We live in a world where we are accustomed to bad news, and this is true for everybody. This is true even for those people you would never expect. This is true uh, for that that neighbor of yours, that neighbor who just seems to have everything going for her, right? That, that neighbor, where she's, she's, she's smart and successful and she's beautiful and she's got the great house and the great husband and the great career and the great laugh. Don't you hate it? Like, it even has a great laugh? You're like, come on. Even your laugh is great. You know what I mean? When you find somebody like that where it's like they've just got everything going for them, It's not true. It's not true. If you get to know them, you will discover that there is bad news. That amazing person who seems to have everything together, what you don't know is that her mother is battling cancer. What you don't know is that she has a cousin who's struggling with alcohol. What you don't know is that when she and her husband get in the car on Saturday mornings, they're not driving to the beach. They're driving to get counseling. You don't know, but everybody is going through or will go through or has gone through some sort of bad news. And the, the central message of Romans, which we've been going through the last seven and a half months, is simply this. There is good news that trumps all bad news. There is good news that trumps all bad news. The book of Romans does not just give you good advice. It doesn't just give you some nice tips on how to deal with whatever challenges that you're facing. It gives you good news. It gives you news that trumps whatever bad news you're dealing with. When we go through the book of Romans and when we gather together on Sunday morning and we revisit this good news, what we're trying to do is is recalibrate our understanding of reality. We're trying to set everything within its proper perspective and what we're trying to do is take all of the bad news and recalibrate that and realize every Sunday that there is good news that trumps that bad news. And that's really what what Paul unpacks in the first 11 chapters of Romans. He just drives home this good news. And then when he gets to chapter 12... And following 12 through 16 is, is really more him addressing this question, of, well, well, now how do we live in light of this good news? How, how do we respond? How do we respond to the fact that we have this good news that trumps all bad news? How do we live different? How do we respond? And, and, and the message that emerges throughout this entire section and is summed up at the beginning of chapter 12 is simply this. In response to God's good news, we give everything to him. We give everything to him. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and I I keep coming back to these verses 
in each section as we go through the, the latter part of the letter because these are really the verses that set the stage for everything that comes after it. So just hear these verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, in view of the good news, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He's saying, in view of what God has done, the more you come to understand the depths of God's good news, the only thing you can do is just surrender everything to him. Offer your, your bodies as, as a living sacrifice. And, and again, it's not that we offer ourselves to God in order to get him to do something. It's that we offer our lives to him because he's already done everything. It's not that we're trying to get him to do something. It's that he's already done everything and we are responding to that good news. And that that is actually an act of worship, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is, this is, this is uh, temple language, worship language. He's saying this is your act of worship. And, and this is important for us to remember because when we gather here on Sunday morning, of course, this is a, a worship service. We're here to, to praise God and to worship God. But in many respects, what this is really here for is to prepare our hearts to worship God Monday through Saturday. Sunday, whatever. You know how many days in the week there are. Right? That's, that's, what, that's what Sunday is for, is to prepare our hearts. You know, we, we, sometimes we'll talk about preparing our hearts for worship. Like, I want to prepare my heart to come to worship. And, and, you know, that makes sense. You're, you're trying to, to clear your mind of distractions so you can focus once again on the Lord. And, and that's a good thing. But, but I actually think the service itself is here to prepare your heart to worship when you leave. That's what we're doing. We're preparing our hearts to worship when we leave because in light of the good news, we respond by giving everything, everything to God. Now, what, what does this living sacrifice look like? Okay, and when, when we go out, when we respond to this good news, we give our lives to God, what does this look like? And again, that's really what chapters 12 and following address. And I want to just suggest that one way of looking at it is this. We respond to the good news. We worship God by being good news. We have received good news, and now we go out and we are good news. Our lives become good news. We've received good news. We give good news. We are good news. We don't have to make good news for ourselves. You see, this is the point. When you've come to understand the gospel, you no longer have to be pursuing your own good news. Most of us are spending our entire lives just trying to make our own good news. But when you come to realize that God already has secured good news for you, it frees us to go out and be good news for others. And that's really what these chapters are all about. And as we come to chapter 13, chapter we're looking at now, I would say there's sort of two ways in which we can be good news, which are highlighted in this passage. We should be good citizens and good neighbors. Right, we've received the good news, we go out, we are good news, and two of the ways in which we do that is by being good citizens 
and by being good neighbors. And we're going to look at those two, these two weeks. Today, we're going to look at being a good citizen, and next, we're going to look at being a good neighbor, right? So the, the first that emerges here is that in response to the gospel, in response to, to God's good news, we should be good citizens. And, and here, Paul's just being, you know, just very, very practical. He's just, and you can just kind of sum it up this way. He's just saying, look, as Christians, we should obey the law, we should honor those who are in authority over us, and we should pay our taxes. It's like, just pretty simple. Just, just follow the laws, honor those who are in authority over you, honor those who work for the government, and, and pay your taxes, right? And, and that's, that's really about all that he's saying. Now, a couple of things need to be said before we move into this. Paul is not, in Romans 13, giving us an exhaustive treatise on a Christian theology of government, right? And this is a mistake that has been made, I think, over the centuries where people try to draw too much out of Romans 13 as if Romans 13, as if Paul is trying to, you know, lay the the groundwork for how Christians should understand the fullness of government, what government, and all of that. And, and, And Paul's goals are a whole lot more modest than that. And that's why it's important for us to realize this is all just part of a larger argument. He he talks about being a good citizen. He talks about being a a good neighbor. Paul's not trying in Romans 13 to give us a full understanding of how Christians should should approach the issue of government. So, so for example, when we bring questions like uh, big government versus small government, well, let's look at Romans 13. That's not, Paul's just not even thinking that way. It's just not at all in his his mindset. He's not addressing, he's not even addressing, you know, issues like democracy versus other forms of government. That's not what Paul's doing here. And and when we try to read too much into it, it gets it gets a little bit dangerous, right? So so he's not trying to give us an exhaustive treatment of government. He's just saying, look, it, this our basic posture as citizens, and whatever whatever government you have, your basic posture should be be a good citizen, be an outstanding citizen, stand out as one who is a good citizen. Now, another, another I think, the neat thing that needs to be said before we move into this is that we need to realize that Paul is writing this. Uh, he is writing this as one who is under the authority of the government, and he's writing to those who are under the authority of the government. In other words, Paul, does, Paul doesn't work for the government, and he's not writing probably to people who did either. Right? So the reason why I say this is that the, the entire approach that Paul is taking this is from those who are under authority to those who are under authority. And the reason why I say that is because throughout Western history, one of the things that happened, and I would say this is a, is a huge misuse of Romans 13, and it's just bad leadership, is when, and this has happened time and time again throughout history, is when leaders quote Romans 13 as a reason for why you should follow their laws. See, when leaders do that, when leaders say, hey, you should, you should obey the law because... That's what it says in Romans 13, you should obey the law. It's a little bit like, well, it would be a little bit like your boss, right? Your boss, your boss saying, hey, you should do what I say, because in, in Ephesians 6, Paul says you should do what I say. And it's true. In Ephesians 6, Paul unpacks relationships in the workplace and, and says you should, you should obey, you should serve, you should work for those who are in authority over you in the workplace. And so, so imagine if you... Imagine if you came to work one day and your boss is like, hey, I need you to get on a plane tonight and go to Japan for the next two weeks. And you're like, okay, uh, why? 
look, because, because I said so. Ephesians 6 says that you should obey what I tell you to do. And, and here's the truth. There's an element of truth to that. That there's a sense in which Christians, we should be, uh, we should be willing to submit to those in authority in the workplace. We should be good workers who, who we, don't, we don't nag them with questions all the time. We, we, aren't, we aren't difficult for our employers. We, we do things because they ask us to, to do things, right? But, but when, when they take that and quote it at you, that's just, that's just bad leadership. It's bad leadership. And so when governments, and they've done this throughout history, say you should do what we say to do because Romans 13 says this. Unfortunately, it's been used throughout history to justify all kinds of things that God would not be in favor of. And truthfully, when, when governments do that, it makes you wonder if they actually think what they're saying goes with what God would want. Because if they did, why wouldn't they use a passage of Scripture from the Bible that demonstrates that this reflects God's character and God's purposes? So this is something, I bring this up simply because this is one of these texts that has been so misused and has been used to oppress people throughout the history of Western Christendom that we really need to understand that that is just a completely inappropriate use of this passage. All Paul's doing... Paul is just writing as one who's under authority to those who are under authority, and he's making this simple point. As Christians, our basic posture towards those in authority and government should be this. Obey the law, pay taxes, and show respect. Now, of course, again, are there times when we have to go against that? Uh, and the answer would be yes. One of the things that I, I, know, I observed here, we've observed here, is that Paul's telling us to be good citizens and be good neighbors. There are times when being a good neighbor and being a good citizen come in conflict with one another. And that has, of course, happened throughout history. An obvious example would be something like in Germany in World War II, German citizens who were protecting Jews from the authorities, breaking the law and doing that. That's an example of being a good neighbor comes up in conflict with being a good citizen. So there are, of course, times when, when what Paul's saying here is not, is not absolute. In fact, if you look at Paul's own life and his own dealings with the Roman authorities, there are times when he challenges what they say to him. So it's not, it's not absolute. But, but here, here's the point. Most of the time when we go against or are inclined to go against uh, something that the government is saying, our, our, our motives and our goals are not nearly as noble as something like Germans protecting Jews in World War II. That's just not normally what it is. And so what he's saying is that our basic posture should be one of submission, one of seeking to be good citizens and showing respect, paying taxes, and obeying the law. And we should do this, again, whether we like our governing officials whether we necessarily agree with everything that they say and they do, nonetheless, this should be our basic posture. Now, some of you, you, some of you might think, as you read Romans 13, you're thinking, okay, Kevin, but, but it's still, don't you think Paul's being a little idealistic here? I mean, he's sort of painting this rosy picture of, of government, right? You know, and, and, you know, some of you, some of you, probably, honestly, you're thinking to yourself, Paul wouldn't have written this when Obama was president. 
And others of you are sitting here saying, well, he wouldn't have written this right now while Trump's president. There's no way he would write something so glowing about government, you know, when one of them was president, right? So we, we kind of got to ask ourselves, well, who actually was running the Roman Empire when Paul writes Romans 13? And this is an interesting one. I don't know if you guys have ever gone to babywizard.com, babywizard.com. It's a, a website that you can go to if you're curious about, well, Laura and I did this when we were looking for names for our kids. And it's a website that you can go to, and it tells you, it tells you how popular a name has been in America throughout uh, American history, right? You, you type in the name, and it tells you uh, what its rank is, how popular it is now, and how popular it was at a different time in history. So right now, for example, the name Kevin is the 40th uh, most popular baby name in America. Apparently, its popularity peaked in the 60s. That's when Kevin was really, everybody was naming their kid Kevin, was in the 60s. I was born in the 70s, so my parents clearly hopped on the bandwagon a little bit late, right? Uh, but anyway, this website's great because it shows you the popularity of all these names. So I, I tried just for kicks. I typed in the name Nero. Because Nero was the emperor of Rome when Paul wrote this. You should try You should try typing in Nero to babywizard.com. And you know what it says? It says, this name has never cracked the top thousand ever in American history. And if you think about it, do you know anybody named Nero? I mean, does anybody know anybody named Nero? And, and, and of course, why is this? Why does nobody name their kids Nero? Because Nero was one of the most ruthless leaders in history. In fact, it's quite ironic in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 13, which is ironic because this is Romans 13. In Revelation chapter 13, John unpacks this vision of the Antichrist. And of course, there's all kinds of different uh, interpretations and perspectives on what he's getting at there. But a, a, good, a, a good number of scholars think that when they, when they look at Romans or excuse me, when they look at Revelation 13 and they look at this, this vision of the Antichrist that John has, they're pretty sure he's inspired by the reign of Nero. That there are things in Revelation 13 that seem to parallel some of the things that Nero did. Now, nobody knows for sure, but it seems like he's either referencing Nero or at least inspired by that, okay? Nero, let me just tell you a little bit about Nero. Nero was not a model of moral character. Uh, he killed a number of people just to stay in power, including his mother. He killed his own mother in order to, because he was worried that she was going to threaten his, his power. And the Nero responsible was responsible in the year 64, the city of Rome was set on fire. Well, they don't know exactly how it was caught on fire, but people began to say that it was the Christians who started it. And so Nero started to persecute Christians. He started to crucify them, burn them at the stake, and have them torn apart by wild dogs. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, to the Christian communities in Rome, about seven or eight years before this happened. 
when you come to, to chapter 16 in Romans and, and there are all of these names that he's addressing people in the Christian communities in Rome, it's possible that some of them might have been ones that were killed by Nero. And so all we can say to ourselves here at this point is like, oh my gosh, well, I mean, either we got to be like, you know, Paul had this major oops, like, oops, shouldn't have wrote that stuff about Nero. Did Paul not realize? No, Paul was very aware of what the Roman Empire was capable of. Paul was very aware of the ruthlessness of the Roman Empire. I mean, let's not forget, it was the Roman Empire that killed Jesus. Paul knows this, and so... so (laughs) What we need to realize is that if he can say this during the reign of Nero, we need to think very seriously about when we complain about our government. We need to think very seriously about that, that that Paul would say to us, listen to me, your basic posture, yes, there are examples, there are exceptions to the rule, but your basic posture, whatever governmental system you happen to be under, your basic posture should be one of respect, one of obeying the laws and paying taxes. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so important? Why would Paul make a big deal out of this, about being a good citizen? And, of course, Paul gets practical, actually, at one point here. And he basically makes the point that bad government is actually better than nothing. As As a general rule, even a bad government is, is really better than nothing. In other words, what, he, what he's getting at here is that, yes, uh, sometimes government can abuse their power. Sometimes they can misuse their power, just like, just like parents can misuse their power and force their daughter to go to school wearing a New England Patriot shirt, right? That can, that can happen. Uh, and so government can do that. They can misuse their power. They can abuse uh, their, their power. But the reality is, is that we simply take for granted what government does. We take for granted even what bad government has for it, that when governments, when, when, uh, when corrupt regimes fall, th- there's always a race to try to get government back. Nobody wants there to be nothing. Oftentimes, you'll find that, that, that evil regimes, when they fall, some other evil regime will come in to fill the, the gap, and people are happy with it because it's almost better than nothing. And, and Paul just, he wants to make that point that government, even bad government, is better than nothing. That we, Nero, for example, I mean, Nero did a lot of terrible things, but, but we also need to realize that the Roman Empire was a place where the, the Christian community was actually able to spread. That, that it was the, the Romans, for example, they had very good road systems, uh, very efficient road systems where you could... You could travel pretty long distances uh, in, in, for that day and age. It was pretty, uh, pretty remarkable how far you could travel. And it's fairly well uh, recognized that Christianity was able to spread because Paul's able to dart all around the Roman Empire and he's not getting mugged all of the time. And that's just a basic thing that, that we, we often take for granted. Here, here's the point. We take government for granted. We just do. We take it for granted, I think especially in a country like America where we've had 
such relative stability in our government for so long that we just take it for granted. We take for granted the, the, the fact that, I know I take this for granted, that when I go to sleep at night, I sleep like a baby. Unless my kids come in and wake me up. I mean, I sleep like a baby. I, I, I sleep, I, I don't really, I don't worry about somebody breaking into my house and attacking my family. I don't worry about some foreign army coming and occupying Rivervale. Why is that? It's because there are men and women in uniform who day in and day out are serving and putting their lives at risk to keep us safe. And that's true no matter who the president is. We take it for granted. We take the things that our government gives us for granted. We take for granted the fact that just this past uh, week or a week or two ago, something happened with my daughter where I used to read books to her, and now all of a sudden she's reading books to me. And I've helped her with that, but what I happen to know is that she's incredibly blessed to go to Roberge Elementary School. We just take these things for granted. We can go on and on and on and on and on about the ways in which, which government, government is good. Government blesses us in so many ways. And, and Paul just wants to say, don't, don't take this for granted. Don't take for granted. Listen, honestly, we take our politicians for granted. <laughs> we do. We take our politicians for granted. I've, I've said this before. I realize that's somewhat of a controversial statement here. We take our politicians for granted we love to complain, don't we? We love to complain about the dysfunction in Congress. We love to complain about how they can't get along. We love to complain about how they can't compromise and they don't listen to one another. And as I said before, uh, I think actually we should applaud them because they represent us very well. It's representative government. In fact, if they started to get along and, and they started to listen to one another and they started to make compromises, we should vote them out because that would not reflect who we are. I mean, isn't it true? I mean, we, we talk about how they can't listen to each other and they can't get along, and then I see what people write on Facebook, and I see how we are absolutely unable to converse with one another about politics that, that quite frankly, isn't it true? We can't get into a conversation about politics with somebody who disagrees with us. We just can't do it. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. It's so fr We just think they're so lost. We think they're so crazy. We, we can't converse. And so what do we do? We just, you know, we always listen to the same sources. I mean, honestly, isn't this true? Isn't this true of you? That you just, you just listen to the sources that tell you the things that you want to hear. And if you listen to a news source that tells you something that you don't want to hear, you turn it off and you never listen to it again. And we wonder, we wonder why our politicians can't talk with one another. No, they represent us really well. The dysfunction isn't with Congress. The dysfunction is with us. We don't listen, right? So we take for granted. We take for granted all of the ways in which our government offers us so much. And so that's what, that's what Paul wants us to, to see. And, and this is, again, this is really what he's getting at. Here, when he says, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, right? He's basically saying, in general, government does what's good, even bad government. But there's a deeper answer. 
There's a deeper reason why we, our basic posture, should be to be good citizens, to obey the law, to pay our taxes, to show respect and honor. There's a deeper reason. And that is that respect for authority shows respect for God. Respect for authority shows respect for God. Verses 1 and 2 say, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He repeats himself. And the kind of uh, paper that they had to write on was, was expensive. So you didn't repeat yourself in case you, unless you wanted to drive something up. He says it twice. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And so when we show respect to those who are in authority over us, we are actually showing respect for God. And when we show disrespect, we are showing disrespect to God. All authority is ultimately derived from God. And I'm going to use an analogy, and you're going to hate me for this, but because the Patriots keep winning, I feel like I'm allowed to use them in analogies as long as they keep winning. When they stop winning, I'll stop doing it. You're going to be forced, if you watch the game today, to see Bill Belichick on your TV screen. He's the head coach of the New England Patriots. You're going to be forced to see him. But what you may not realize is that his two of his children, Steve and Brian Belichick, will also be somewhere there. They work for the Patriots. One of them, I think uh, Steve is the safeties coach and Brian is an assistant, something like that. And I was trying to figure it out. And I think, I think the way it works is that they both report to a guy named Brian Flores, who's the linebacker's coach. I know way more about this than I should. Who's the linebacker's coach and the defensive coordinator. And so they report to Brian Flores, and Brian Flores reports to Bill Belichick. Now, now here's the thing. I don't know anything about Brian Flores. I don't know if he's a nice guy. I don't know. He might have it in for the, the children. Maybe he doesn't like working for Bill at all. That's certainly possible. And so maybe, maybe he actually is kind of a jerk to Steve and, and Brian Belichick and is, is always assigning them to do things always that, that he wouldn't assign to somebody else. Maybe he's always treating them unfairly. But here's the thing. I think what they would know, what the, the, the children of Belichick would know, is that when they disrespect Brian Flores, they're actually disrespecting their father because he's the one that oversees everybody who's in authority over them. And what Paul is saying is, in the grand scheme of things, that's how it is with all authority. That all authority has come and is derived from God. And so when we show respect to authority, that in itself is respect for God. And when we show disrespect, that is disrespect towards God. So why should we show respect to those who are in authority? Not because they are worthy. They might be. Sometimes they are. But because God is worthy. God is worthy of our respect and our honor. Earthly authority, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But Jesus is always worthy of our respect and honor. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. See, Philippians chapter 2, I would suggest, 
is if you're looking for a passage, if you're looking for a passage that kind of gets at the heart of what a Christian understanding of authority should look like, or how should Christians understand authority? And in particular, how should those, when we are in authority, how should we exercise that authority? I would suggest that actually not Romans 13, but Philippians 2 is really the passage, one of the passages that you would want to look at because this shows us how Jesus understands his own authority. This is Philippians chapter 2, page 1,162 of your pew Bibles. And I'm just going to read from verse 5. It says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, that is what authority is supposed to look like. And what is it? What what, what do we see here? We see here that the ultimate authority, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, did not see his authority as something to use for himself. That's what this is saying when it says, Jesus, being in his very nature, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What that means is, did not, did not consider the power and the authority of his equality with God to be something to hold on to. But how many people in power, they just try to hold on to their power? Or that's why we have to have democracy. We've got to be able to vote people out because our instinct is to hold on to power. But what Jesus shows us is that no, what, what real God-given authority looks like, it says, no, this is not something that I hold on to. It's not something that I keep for myself. I use it for the sake of others. I give it up for others. Look, on the cross, two things I just want to observe about authority that are revealed in the cross. On the cross, through Jesus' death and his resurrection, he defeated earthly authority. He demonstrated that he has authority over all earthly authority. And, and the way that he did this, is it's important to notice that, that he was killed by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire wasn't just, you know, some... Some tiny, little, uh, some tiny little city-state that nobody knew about. The Roman Empire was the most powerful empire in the world. The world had never seen anything like the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus is crucified and when he comes back from the dead, that's not just a, a statement of theology. That is a political statement. Jesus is saying the most powerful empire in the world has absolutely no authority over me. On the cross, through his death and resurrection, he shows that he has defeated all earthly authority, and he shows us what worthy authority looks like. And of course, this appears in verse 11. Paul alludes to what, how he uses this authority. Returning to our passage This is why I had David read through verse 11. So he exhorts the Christian community to be good citizens, to be good neighbors, 
He says, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. He's saying, listen, you can submit. You can submit to those in authority over you because the ultimate authority is using that authority for your salvation. That there will come a day when every wrong that is done to you, everyone who in authority has done something wrong to you, there will come a day when God will make it right. Because the ultimate authority is one who uses it for no other reason than to show his love. Friends, we can show respect to authority because Jesus is our ultimate authority. Can you bow your heads with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for the good news. We praise you for the gospel. We praise you that you who are sovereign over all things are also a God who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. God, we live in a world where we are constantly caught in power struggles. Power struggles at work. Power struggles in our marriages. God, power struggles in politics. God, we're constantly fighting to try to bring salvation to ourselves through these different means. God, I pray that this morning we could stop and we could rest knowing that you, our ultimate authority, has given himself completely for us. God, may we rest in you. May we find that there is true and lasting peace. Pray this in Jesus' name.